1: Hello, my lovely betwixters. It's that time again. It's time that we sit down together and talk absolute historical smut and filth. And before we do that, I have to give you your fair do's warning. Fair do's. You've been warned. This is an adult podcast with adult themes in an adult nature from an adult presenter who can't stop swearing. So, anyway, there you go. Fair dues. You've been warned. You knew what you were getting yourself in for before you continued with this absolute filth. Lord Byron, Mr Darcy, Heathcliff, Rochester, Rudolph Valentino, James Dean, Cary Grant... Christian Grey, Idris Elba. That's just a personal one. But who was your first male celebrity crush? David Seaman, the goalie for the England football team. I was just mesmerized by his long, thick ponytail. (laughs)
2: The name that comes to my mind, who I thought was gorgeous, was Rock Hudson. Just about everybody else, every other female in the world loved Rock Hudson. It was Will Smith, because he looked buff in Men in Black.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Gary Lineker, for reasons that I still can't explain. Today we are asking the questions, what is it about certain men that has made them go from, yes, you're a very good-looking guy, to heartthrob territory? And what is it about these men, and we are talking particularly about men today, that made them so... so dreamy for so many over the years. Well, today, Betwixt the Sheets, we're gonna find out why everyone wants them to get betwixt their sheets. We're gonna try and get to the delicious bottom of it.
0: What do you look for in a man? Oh, money, of
1: course. <laughs> You're supposed to rise when an adult speaks to you. I
0: make perfect copies of whatever my boss needs by just turning the knob and pushing the button.
1: Yes, social courtesy does make a difference.
0: Goodness, what beautiful time. Goodness has nothing to do
2: with it, Jerry.
1: And welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society with me, Kate Lister. Here's a question. What makes a man attractive? Hmm? From Casanova to Elvis to Harry Styles, what qualities have been equated to sexiness throughout history? And I'm not just talking about a good looking guy here. I'm talking about what is it that kicks it up a notch into the realm of the heartthrob. The guys who have women throwing knickers at them, ideally on stage, not in a weatherspoon. That's very out of order. But what is it that turns someone from just a good-looking guy into heartthrob material? Well, today I am talking to Carol Dyehouse, who has been unpicking why certain men have had the power to make women swoon. Fans at the ready, everyone. Let's do it. Hello to Carol Diehouse. Welcome to Betwixt the Sheets. Thank you, Kate. It's a great pleasure to join you today. I am really thrilled to be talking to you about this because we are talking about heartthrobs. It's such a fascinating history. When you stop and you think, well, what is a heartthrob exactly? Like, what does that even mean? What do you have to do to become a heartthrob? And who were the first?
2: Well, the question about who is the first, I mean, I'm likely to answer in terms of how far back I went in time thinking about this issue of hot tops. And I suppose I look for people, for men. I should say at the beginning, I was interested in heterosexuality, although an awareness of gay issues actually impacts on that. And maybe we could come around to that later. But I was primarily interested in women lusting in big numbers or having very big romantic hits on men. So in part, communication shapes that, you know, we don't really know what happened. But I thought perhaps the first obvious, I mean, Byron and Liszt, the yes. two of the early ones, Liszt, the piano player, I mean, it said that women used to collect the butts of his smoked cigars and push them down their cleavages or have them... <laughs> <set> them <laughs> no, they or didn't! <laughs> They kind of went completely weak at the knees over this, but Byron, of course, is classic. He still exerts quite an effect on the imagination today, doesn't he? Absolutely, absolutely.
1: I'd invite him to my fantasy dinner party, mostly because I'd be hoping to sleep with him.
2: (laughs) Well... (laughs) There'd be nobody else there. It would
1: just be me and Byron, that'd
2: be it. (laughs) I mean, you know, the word Byronic implies that he's still with us, really. We still talk about Byronic heroes, but he's not the most obvious. When you think about it, you know, people often point out he was pudgy and lame. You know, it's not obvious why he was so adored no but the scale of it is extraordinary the fact that women in victorian times when they were supposed to be shrinking violets and fairly modest would ask to meet him under the bushes in green park we know this because many of the letters remain as does the hair collection do you know about the hair collection
1: please tell people about the hair collection (laughs) it's one of my favorite historical facts
2: well, rather horribly, he collected hair from all the women he slept with. <laughs> um, and so not head hair. Well all sorts of hair: braids, curls, the odd ringlet, bits of the other stuff, <laughs> wrapped up in what is now yellowing paper, and labeled in his handwriting. I did try and find out where this collection had gone. It used to be housed in Albemarle Street in the John Murray editorial offices. You know, when John Murray, the publisher, had those offices, the hair collection was there. I think now it's gone to Scotland, but I did get some sort of cringy replies when I I rang up. (laughs) What did they say? Oh, I can't remember. It's a while back. I think somebody said, uh, yeah... (laughs) I think we do have that. <laughs> How do you even start that conversation? <laughs> I never got round to going up to Edinburgh to ask to see Byron's hair collection.
1: <laughs> I read somewhere that he would send clippings of his dog back to women that wrote to him, or is that is that a myth? Oh, I don't know. I haven't read that. Grim, isn't it? <laughs> As a thought. Do you know, I don't know why I fancy him, because he's clearly a jerk. Yeah, absolutely. Why? Are you sure you do? <laughs> I don't know, but that that's the thing, though, isn't it? This kind of archetypal, why do women like a bad boy? What is it about the bad boy? And then I feel like a bad feminist. I'm just like, why am I attracted to arseholes, even historical arseholes? Like, in your research, have you managed to find any kind of answer to that? Not me personally, but what is it about the bad boy?
2: One way in is to think that, you fancy a construct rather than a person, i.e. you project a lot of your own desires True. onto the person that you are obsessing over. So quite often you have to ask what the man represents that the woman is repressing within herself. Ah, There's also the social mores of the time and the extent to which you are permitted to express desire as a woman, Mm. what kind of context that can be possible in. But I still think it's extraordinary that women did write to him. I mean, I'm not making up the bit about letters asking to meet under the bushes in Green Park. You know, we know that women threw themselves at him. So you do wonder. And maybe there's a perversity in it. Well, there's obviously a perversity in it. I mean, the fact that, you know, you want something you can't have. If other people want it, you think you perhaps want it. The more people that want it, the more that you feel you're losing out. I mean, Byron himself wrote bits of poetry which made it quite clear that he was aware that women were projecting fantasies onto him and that he didn't always measure up to them. I mean, he was intelligent enough to see that.
1: Wow. It's kind of like a mass hysteria, wasn't it, with Byron? And it's even stranger when you consider that they probably wouldn't have known what he looked like. There was no social media. They'd just read his poems and about him in the newspapers and were offering to have sex with him under a bush. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Well, we're not quite sure. Well, I mean, I don't know how much people would have thought about having sex. I mean, it was a romantic encounter. And
1: oh, it was romantic. Oh, so i that's me. Lowering the tone.
2: Swooning and throbbing <laughs> would be the words, I imagine. <laughs> that's
1: just me trying to shag Byron <laughs> under a bush, <laughs> spoiling it for everybody.
2: <laughs> what did he make of all this then? What did he write about it? He did write poetry showing that he was completely aware that women were projecting onto him. And he was ambivalent about it. He moaned, he whinged about being the magnet for so many desires. But equally, he liked it. I mean, look at the way he dressed. I mean, some of the portraits where he's wearing Albanian dress. I mean, I went to some length to look at the clothes just because I like clothes. But he really fancied himself in those gorgeous silks and brocades and things. So there's that. But there's also the way that actually he had a feminine side and that also appealed to women. I mean, you could talk for ages on why Byron was such a heartthrob. I mean, his interesting clothes, his awareness of things was also attractive to women. But the dark brooding stuff, there's a vein of that all the way through the history of heartthrobs.
1: Do you think as well it's because he had a reputation for sex? Is that something you found in other heartthrobs? Is the, they sort of have to have started the conversation around sex, almost like that creates a permission base for people, women in particular, to talk to him.
2: Depends how you define sex, you know, and I know that sounds silly, but it really does. I mean, when you think of girl hysteria over boy bands, I mean, I've thought about that because I originally thought of subtitling heartthrobs from Byron to boy bands. When you think about boy bands, I mean, often adolescent girls, it's often said hysteria. The hysteria is, is a kind of trying out, isn't it? And there's security in numbers. So the fact yes. that you go with your girlfriends to swoon and yell and throb and so on in pop concerts yeah. provides a kind of safety and isn't necessarily about what you might think of as raw sex. It's more about practice feelings than raw sex isn't it i mean if you swoon going back in time over donny osmond or you know one direction or elvis the pelvis (laughs) yes i mean the very act of going and swooning and sighing is not necessarily about wanting to go to bed with these guys but more about practicing heterosexuality in a safe environment that's fascinating
1: because yeah I suppose you're right it is a safe space because they're probably not going to have sex with them by the end of it but they get to sort of engage in this I don't know what you'd call it like when you look at the old footage of the girls screaming at the Beatles and Elvis to the point where they can't hear the music it is a kind of mania that they're experiencing
2: yes but it's a practicing of your own feelings of desire and a trying out about what you want isn't it at some level Is there any male equivalent of this? Has there ever been like teenage boys going and
1: screaming at a female pop star like this?
2: That's a really good question. I don't think I could answer that. I think that would require another sort of book. And I mean, that did raise the question about if I reverse the genders, whether you could write that kind of book about men's historical desire for women. I mean, I think that'd be a fascinating subject, but the subject I'd taken on was already too big. It's massive. (laughs) I became aware of that quite early on, but I wanted to do it because I'm interested in the extent to which culture shapes desire. And I wanted to know whether, you know, objects of desire through female lives. Well, first of all, I wanted to look at that because as I'm sure you're aware, second wave feminism was much influenced by art critic John Berger's dictum, which was that men look at women and women look at themselves through the eyes of men so that women are sex objects and they see themselves through the eyes of men, which I thought removed their subjectivity. And I also thought it was crazy because I remember being at school and talking to girls about who we fancied, you know. And once I started getting interested in men, which took me a while because I liked (laughs) horses better, (laughs) I like my own. I was very aware that we did talk about men as sex objects, and it was just that that couldn't come into the open. So I thought, let's reverse Burgers dictum and look at whether women fancy men and whether there's a historical pattern in their objects of desire. And that's what I wanted to find out in writing Heartthrobs, really.
1: It's fascinating, isn't it? Because we
2: hear so much
1: about the male gaze and there's this kind of narrative that the female gaze is is mysterious and misunderstood or it's not existent. And it tends to crop up in weird places, I find. Like women find things that you wouldn't necessarily think are sexy as sexy. Like, I don't know if you've seen on TikTok recently, there's a very short clip of two actresses from the new House of Dragons sketch And one of them is kind of androgynous. And she's just talking about a drink that she likes. And she just says, it's a Negroni Spagliato with Prosecco in it. But she kind of leans forward and says to the other woman, and all of social media is blown up with these young women going, am I a lesbian? That just really turned me on. And it was like a real, like, what was it about that that made a load of women go, oh, Hello? Like when Mr. Darcy walked out of the lake, like a soggy man. Why is that sexy? All
2: right. The question about women finding things sexy that, you know, surprises often men, that goes right back because, I mean, one of the most all-time massive heartthrobs in history was Rudolph Valentino. True. And he illustrates that absolutely to a T because men could not understand why women liked Valentino. And I think I should say it's hard to trace patterns of female desire in a big way until the technology allows you and until women become consumers in their own right. And there are kind of three stages in women becoming consumers in their own right. And then we can trace something of their desires and passions through their consuming habits. And that happened when they started to read romance in big numbers at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. And you have the founding of Mills and Boone in the 20th century, and we start to realise what women want through what they're paying for. Right. The next stage is cinema and that's where Valentino makes this enormous hit because men are saying this is not a sexy man. I mean particularly in America you know the sexy man is a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant and that is through male eyes. Men have a very clear idea at that stage about what they think of as manly and when they see women fainting and going crazy over Valentino they can't make it out at all because to them men dismissed him as a pink powder puff who used makeup and danced like a snake on the floor. They thought he was Arab, which he wasn't, he was Italian. But because he acted in The Shake, this famous film over which women palpitated in large numbers. But men got very aggressive because they thought women were perverse for fancying Valentino. I mean, eventually the culture accommodated that. And, you know, you find people trying to emulate Valentino, men using the canes and slicking the hair back. They even produced a brand of condoms in America called Shake Condoms. No, they didn't. Yeah. I mean, shake condoms traded on the reputation of Valentino for sexiness, you know, this whole shake obsession that comes in at that time. When women express their desires through their consumption habits, it's not what men expect. Has the heartthrob
1: shifted throughout? Has there been a constant that you found in all of them? Or does the heartthrob change from era to era depending on what women want?
2: Yeah, both. I'm a historian, so I'm kind of professionally invested in finding changes. You know, if I thought things didn't change, I doubt whether I'd be a historian. It would invalidate history. We'd all be
1: out of a job, wouldn't we? <laughs> Just be like, that's that then.
2: But clearly they do. I mean, you can't imagine, say, Victorian misses, you know, in the home, sort of doing their bits of needlework and going visiting with their mums. It's hard to imagine them fancying, you know, Justin Bieber or something like that, isn't it?
1: So they wouldn't know what to make of Harry Styles, would they? <laughs>
2: No, it wouldn't. I mean, clearly, there are threads of continuity, yes, but they do change. The key that I concluded, the kinds of men that women fancy resides in women's social position at any particular moment in history. For instance, there are some obvious things, like in the days of empire at the end of the 19th century, women often fancied imperial adventurers, and the literature is full of sort of solid-jawed, imperial adventurers in white pith helmets who rescue women from natives they're not exactly ideologically correct these fantasies i mean think of tarzan and so on you know
1: no it's true it's it's not nice to think you're having a racist sexual fantasy
2: so you can see that that fits in with empire you can see that at times of crisis soldiers become sexy You can see that when air travel happens, RAF pilots in their gorgeous sort of grey-blue jackets with the silver wings were mega heartthrobs. You know, it was said that if you wore those badges and went into a pub, everybody would buy you drinks and the women would look at you lovingly, you know. But there are things that are harder to understand. Why, for instance, if you look at romance fiction after the Second World War, the biggest category is doctors. It's nurses marrying doctors and romance around doctors. That wouldn't have happened in Victorian times, partly because there wasn't an NHS and doctors were, you know, they didn't have the social status that they had later on. In a lot of Victorian novels, the doctors are rather iffy in social class terms. Yes, they are. You know, think of Middlemarch, think of Emma Bovary. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yeah, they're kind of dodgy and they're not upper class, definitely. But by the 1950s, you know, it's Dr. Kildare, it's Emergency Ward 10. There are just dozens and dozens and dozens. Mills and Boone couldn't find enough authors who would do doctor nurse romances in the 50s. Now, why is that? Partly because the NHS is getting going and there are more doctors are more visible. But it's partly because there was the back to the home movement after the Second World War, which didn't actually last, but it was there for a while. And women's opportunities were still very limited. So they were looking for providers, a male provider. A doctor was a good male provider. You can sort of see why women went for certain kinds of men at certain times in history. And it varies according to their social position so that once women can pay their own way, they can go for sexy 'er ne'er-do-wells, so long as they don't lose their money to them. Or they can go for pretty boy sexy types, you know, but not if you want a provider. (laughs) I think you have to look at women's life chances at any particular historical era and then see what decisions they were making in terms of their life chances. You see, it was often said of universities in the post-war world that women just went there to find husbands. And the feminist in me, when that was first said, thought, sod this, you know, that's not on. But then when you think about it, they did. (laughs) (laughs) Because it was a much more rational decision to find a man who was going places than to try to go places on your own when the labour market was so limited.
1: I'd see exactly what you mean. And I'm really fascinated with where we are right now when it comes to women being able to earn their own money. And because we seem to be entering not uncharted territory, but like the idea that a woman doesn't need a man in this culture in this time and doesn't need him as in financially need him. That seems to be quite new. Like even when my mum got a credit card, she couldn't get a credit card without her husband or her father co-signing for it so women couldn't have money the same way that men did going back a bit further they couldn't earn the same money going back a bit further they couldn't go to university so throughout history women have needed a man and now we're not quite equal yet but we have the ability to like i live by myself i pay my own way i bought my own place i've got a job that is quite new and then it kind of puts in the position of well then what do i need a man for (laughs) i don't need him
2: Well, that is the question that I think it's worth asking in any particular historical era. What did the women of that time want when they wanted a man for life?
1: (laughs) Yeah, a man for life, not just for Christmas.
2: Exactly. You go back to the (laughs) post-Second World War period and women were feeling they were left on the shelf if they weren't married by 21. And that's when you get the explosion of comics like Jackie Valentine, Roxy, Marilyn, Date. I mean, a huge explosion in the 50s, just after the Second World War, of comics, girls' papers, which are almost all about how to get a man before you're 21 and ruined. You've lost it. <laughs> if you're not married by 21, and the age of marriage goes right down after the Second World War, right down. Really? Women were marrying younger and younger, and that caused quite a lot of social problems. You know, there was all the running away to Gretna Green if your parents didn't approve of you marrying. But they're having their desires shaped by the culture. They know that the job situation is bad. I mean, three quarters of girls are still leaving school at 14, 15, you haven't got the raising of the school leaving age to 16. The job situation is not there for them yet. I mean, the labour market is still terribly limited. So it was rational to try and get married young. But you're quite right, when that changes, things change massively. And we seem to be having a bit
1: of a, I don't want to say a backlash, but there's definitely a kind of movement amongst certain extreme crazy voices about like men need to be more masculine, take control of their women. This is a weird throwback.
2: Well, it is a throwback, isn't it? I've always thought that feminism was about making, you know, women stronger and more independent and able to support themselves and about allowing men to be more sensitive and to not try and build up this kind of, outer coat of impenetrable, you know, stoicism and masculinity. So for me, my kind of feminism is about allowing much more latitude in gender terms. I couldn't agree more. But you'll always get people going on. And war complicates things, doesn't it? Absolutely. How did war complicate things in your research when it comes to heartthrobs? Well, as I said earlier, I think, you know, there's more idealisation of soldiers. I mean, if you go back to Jane Austen's period, it's in Pride and Prejudice, isn't it, that the troops in Brighton get a mention, women going crazy when they see the red coats and hear them. Yeah. Mm. And then that happened in the First World War with something called khaki fever. Yes. When women were supposed to kind of go out and, you know, howl like cats on heat as soon as khaki came into town. Then there's consternation because in the Second World War they go for the Americans (laughs) because the American male has chewing gum and a better teeth than the English
1: male. (laughs) I love that, our sexual desires being swayed by chewing gum.
2: And there's all that stuff about bashing your virtue for nylon stockings. (laughs) (laughs) I would be one of them, I think. (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: terrible, isn't it? I'll be back with Carol after this short break.
0: Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how codebreakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race, I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit.
1: So if we take it sort of right up to the modern day of who are the heartthrobs today, I suppose it's not quite modern, but if we think of something like Fifty Shades of Grey, because that has created all manner of ripples in academia and especially in feminist studies. It's not really to get into whether or not it's a good or a bad book, but there's this main character, Christian Grey, who's a billionaire at 27 for a start off. 27 year old I know, we're doing beer bongs in the park, but he's a billionaire And he's into dominance and sadomasochism and he's very dominating and he's very forceful and he kind of takes over this main character, Anastasia's life. And women just went mental for it. And then there was loads of reaction to it of other people going, I just don't understand this. How can people find this attractive? And I've always been fascinated as to what is that like what was that with this that's the heartthrob thing again, isn't it? But with a made-up
2: character. Well, it's a really well-worn fantasy, isn't it? I mean, I remember there was a journalist in the telegraph, I can't remember, but she described Fifty Shades of Grey as Mr. Darcy with nipple clumps. <laughs> <laughs> i never thought of that. Yeah, I mean the theme is really like Pride and Prejudice. You have this aloof, damaged man with loads of money that's really important i mean we remember lizzie bennett falls for mr darcy basically she thinks he's an arrogant shit but then she falls for him when she's at the gates of his house and she sees just how big amazing it is oh maybe i made a mistake you know look at his barbara cartland used to call it marrying park gates you know, a woman has succeeded if she married Park Gates. Strong, I like that. Anyway, Mr. Darcy with nipple clumps. Yes, I mean, I did wonder. I read it, of course, because I had to write in the book. Yeah, his red room of pain. <laughs> there's, this, there's a red room in one of the Bronte books, it's Jane yes. She has to go into the red room. I used to think, who cleans his room? Good point. pain. <laughs> what does the cleaner think about Christian Gray's red room of pain? They'd be paid very well, I think. <laughs> It's a fantasy. The fantasy is mousy little girl. What's her name? I was trying to think. Is it Anna? Anastasia Steele. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't even have a laptop, for Christ's sake. He buys her a laptop. No, and she's a virgin. And she's a virgin, yeah. And suddenly, this ostensibly powerful guy with private jets falls for this, you know, we're told she's attractive, but she hasn't even got a laptop. I mean, what is this about? But it's recognisably like Lizzie Bennet in... Pride and Prejudice, who has nothing, you know, she has nothing and she's not brilliant looking. Remember, these are female fantasies. I mean, they're written by Jane Austen and E.L. Jones. Mm. The female fantasy is, you know, no matter how poor you are, no matter how lacking you are in gorgeousness or anything, some massively mega rich bloke with a curly lip and partland to lust over is going to emerge also like Mr. Darcy you know, is gonna have a really good body and he's gonna fall for you and nobody else. I mean it's bollocks.
1: It kind of is, isn't it? I'm rather disappointed. Like I've been walking around biting my lip like Anastasia does in Fifty Shades of Grey for a while. And so far, no billionaires have bitten. I've been actually biting my top lip, so I look a bit like a piranha. So I don't, that <laughs> might be something to do with it. I heard Fifty Shades of Grey described as being that it's not sex porn, it's capitalist porn. Mm. I thought maybe that's yeah. it, because like, the ostentatious, maybe it's the provider thing yeah. again.
2: Yeah. And the fact that you don't have to make any decisions. I mean, some of those early romances, I had great fun reading romance fiction to write heartthrobs. and. One of the things that was wonderful was, as I say, I live in Brighton. There used to be, it's unfortunately closed down, a second-hand paperback bookshop called Two Way Books, which sold historical romances. The old couple that owned it eventually retired. And when they retired, their children sold off all the stock, which was massive. And they were several deep on the shelves. So it was like romance archaeology you started with the black lace and the more up-to-date historical romance and the further back you got on the shelves, you know, you got into the very sweet and innocent 1970s kinds of romance, which had titles like separate bedrooms or, you know, a winter love story or stuff like that. And I mean, it's extraordinary how they've become so much more explicit, but there are Continuities. One of the early, very popular romance writers was a woman called Betty Neils, who wrote hospital romances, really. The male heartthrob figures in all her books are very rich Dutch doctors with extraordinary names. Dutch doctors? They are always Dutch. Fair, right, okay. <laughs> the heroines usually start off as nurses, not very attractive, no resources. And of course, the rich Dutch doctors fall for them. But they seem to solve in their future. They think that finding A rich enough protective male solves the future for them that removes the worry (laughs) i mean it kind of does and i'd say
1: that and then i know that kind of makes me a bad feminist but if somebody turned up with a billion pounds and just like hello i think you're quite sexy wouldn't that like make everything much better (laughs)
2: that's terrible isn't it but it's it's true but would you give up all the interests that you have and all your research work and all your... I don't want to answer that question, Carol. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't.
1: I wouldn't. I, don't, I definitely wouldn't. <laughs> One of the things that I want to ask you is, there seems to be a long fantasy of men, I want to say dominating women, but the woman kind of becomes quite just submissive i wouldn't say that elizabeth bennett was submissive but the man becomes like this invading force who kind of doesn't take no for an answer and like steamrolls past her objections injects himself into her life mm. solves everything and it kind of plays with this sort of no
2: means yes really sort of trope yeah yeah yeah, yeah. what is that well, I mean, I had to spend a lot of time thinking about that. And it's hugely controversial, as you know, in feminist circles. And going back in history, there have been some massive fights about it. There was a massive controversy between Molly Parkin and Violet Winspear about this because Violet, who was a working class woman who didn't marry and wrote very popular romance fiction in the late 60s and 70s, said that she liked her men big, strong and protective. They had to be the kind of man who was capable of rape. And Molly Parkin went... Oh, hellfire. Yeah, she went crazy about that and denounced Violet Winspear. It's the days of early feminism and that kind of thing could not be said. Wow. But Violet was terribly upset and felt that this had been contemptuous of her. I think what you have to think about is that she didn't mean that they would rape. She meant that they had to be powerful. It's a fantasy. Mm. And I think the key thing about a fantasy is you're in control of it. So women reading stories about all-powerful men who overwhelm them or overcome them, there are lots of things to be said. Firstly, it relieves them of the responsibility of having to take the initiative in a culture where taking the initiative is not possible for women or humiliating for them in some way. They're kind of socialised out of it. Mm. But secondly, a fantasy is something that you are in control of. So it's not like, you know, rape is about hate and violence, non-consensual stuff. A fantasy is quite different. You're in control of the fantasy. You can
1: shut the book. Can't not consent your own fantasy, can you?
2: So I think we just have to make a distinction between fantasy and reality and who is in control. Yeah. And that's what I would say over and over again. In a fantasy, if a woman is consuming a fantasy, she is in control, you know. That's the difference. But it did cause terrible trouble, this idea of men overwhelming women in the fiction of the 1970s. And I've stopped reading it now I've finished the book. So I don't really know whether all powerful men are still... Acceptable in romance fiction today. I mean, it moves very fast. It
1: does, doesn't
2: it? I mean, the shake theme went on for ages, ages and ages. And, you know, you get some extraordinary titles. I have to look up this one. But, I mean, my daughter, who's also a historian, found a book for me, I think just after I'd finished writing, called The Playboy Shakes Virgin Stable Girl. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> a novel by Sharon Kendrick. <laughs> And that says so much doesn't it the playboy shaped virgin stable girl it's got everything virginity power sex exoticism eroticism horses because,
1: horses
2: you know, women like horses.
1: <laughs> i teach a class on medieval literature and one of the things that i'm always interested in is there's a whole subgenre of modern Viking erotica that is written by women that does exactly what you'd imagine. It's a great big strapping guy with a six pack, and it's all things like this poor Anglo Saxon milkmaid has been kidnapped by this terrible Viking. And that's, it's sort of doing the same thing, isn't it? It's that power dynamic that makes people very uncomfortable, but is still incredibly popular.
2: Ooh. Mm. Well, maybe it's still quite hard for women to own their own sexuality. I mean, we assume that it's not. And compared with the past, it's not. But I mean, a lot of the stuff I was looking at was pre mary Stokes. And Mary Stokes was vilified for actually talking about women's subjective sexual desires and so on. And, you know, for telling men off for not listening to them. (laughs) But, you know, maybe it's still harder for younger women to own their sexuality. I mean, some people would say that the ubiquity of internet porn now has made it even harder because, not because of porn per se, but because it's masculine dominated porn. So it's harder to find spaces to understand women's desires sexually. I don't know, because as I say, I stopped writing the book and I can't. (laughs) moved on somewhere else there's a
1: lot of attention around when women have these kind of fantasies i think they're called in psychiatric sort of literature and research ravishment fantasies for the reason that you just said there is that we don't call them rape because it's not because it's in your head you've created this you're always consenting to what is in your head Mm. and i've done a little bit of reading around that and one of the things i thought was really interesting is a lot of focus is given to women who have these fantasies but being dominated is also an a hugely common fantasy for men Mm. so it's not that like just women are thinking of this stuff
2: yes I mean that really intrigued me in another book that I wrote which is called Girl Trouble which started off with a discussion of the white slave trade because that was such a big issue what was called the white slave trade in early 20th century Britain and which coincides and I think not coincidentally with suffragism and the suffragettes demanding the vote and so on And there was huge discussion of the so-called white slave trade. And it was always, I mean, there's some very, very porno accounts, you know, which are really ostensibly condemning it, but really luxuriating in the details. A lot of them have very upfront illustrations. I mean, I remember one about the white slave trade, which had a little girl cowering and a female madam and a man with a whip and a top hat, you know, and all that. And I thought, that is actually the image in people's minds. But when I got down to looking at the Metropolitan Police archives and the actual nitty-gritty historical stuff, it was completely wrong because it wasn't about men whipping women. It was about men wanting women to whip them.
1: So <laughs> That is such a popular fantasy. Always has been, always will be. Yeah. There's many, many men out there who want to be dominated as well. And Whatever you do in the bedroom, whatever you do in your own brain, as long as it's not hurting another human being without their consent.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, I'd have to think. (laughs) You have to think about that one. Maybe I'm
1: just projecting onto you now. (laughs) Tell me I'm not weird, Carol.
2: (laughs) But the business about heart I mean, you know, the key thing is what you said about what women wanted at any particular time and their life chances at any particular moment. Because in a book that I did after heart when I was looking at bigger patterns of love between men and women, And how those have changed, I mean, in even more kind of crazy, big subject. But one of the things that really intrigued me was a study that was done by two women academics in the 50s at Birkbeck College. And they asked sixth form, well, sort of older adolescents still at school, how they saw their futures. And they were completely unprepared for what the girls said they wanted and how they envisaged their futures and the girls had all because it was the post war period when i said girls were marrying younger and younger the girls all wanted to be married by the time they were 21 they all wanted to have children but what the researchers didn't bargain on was the girls all then at a fantasy level killed their husbands off oh my they said God. that they could <laughs> they could imagine their husbands either suddenly got ill or they perished in road accidents and then they started quite happily talking about what they were going to do with the rest of their lives and the researchers, I mean, there were two, you know, reputable researchers, Thelma Vanessa and Joyce Joseph. And they said it's almost as if widowhood was an ambition. That's the goal. Yeah, they were very, very shocked by this. But the only way I could think about it was that the women were marrying because they wanted a house, they wanted security, they wanted children. They probably did love because, yeah. you know, somebody who gratifies those wishes, you're going to feel loving towards, but they didn't have a model of kind of companionship that would go beyond that. Once that had been achieved, you know, it didn't go any further. So there was this odd thing that without conferring with each other, time and time again, when they repeated this experiment and distributed the questionnaire the girls killed their husbands off oh my
1: has anyone redone that experiment do we know what our current sixth formers are planning
2: well that'd be really good wouldn't it to do that people have done similar things i mean sue sharp who was a sociologist who wrote a book called something like just a girl or like a girl in the 70s and then did a follow-up with school children later found that the girls had shifted their aspirations considerably The latest study showed that they did expect to be earning. The early study, they just wanted to marry and have children. The latest study showed them becoming more independent-minded. If I was younger and had more time, you could do a study through time called, you know, Girls Changing Aspirations in 20th Century Britain. That'd be
1: fascinating.
2: I mean, a bit of that I do in the next book, you know, the one I've just done, which is after heartthrobs called Love Lives.
1: Our final question for you, Carol, who are the heartthrobs today and why do you think they are appealing? Where are we up to with the heartthrob? Because they're still there, aren't they?
2: <laughs> oh, yes. Do you mean yours or mine or uh, everybody's? You know? Just in general, like, you know, who are we throwing our knickers at today? Ah. <laughs> uh, oh, you can answer that as well as I can.
1: Harry Styles. <laughs> Got to be up there.
2: Yeah, Harry Styles, because also he models a much broader notion of masculinity. But that's Mm. been happening a long time. I mean, David Beckham does. Yes. And so on. I mean, a much less toxic kind of masculinity. Uh, So I think, yes, people like that are more likely to be heartthrobs. But I'm not sure that the old lantern-jawed alpha male caveman type would have such a purchase today and i think that's a good thing i think that is a very good thing
1: oh carol you've been amazing to talk to and if people want to find out more about you where can they find you if they want to throw their knickers at you where can they find you (laughs)
2: I don't think that's going to happen. But I'd be delighted if they got interested in my books. So perhaps you could, you know, the book Heartthrobs, which we've obviously been discussing at which is subtitled A History of Women and Desire. And my more recent book, which has a wonderfully glittery cover. Oh, it does. <laughs> which is called Love Lives from Cinderella to Frozen. Amazing. Uh,
1: and are you on social media or are you wiser than that? Not
2: really. There are enough podcasts and reviews and books on Amazon for people to...
1: (laughs) Go and get the book. Oh, Carol, thank you so much for talking to me today. You've been an absolute treat. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And thank you so much to Carol for joining me. And if you like what you've heard, if your pulse has been racing, please don't forget to like, review and subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Join me again betwixt the sheets, The History of Sex, Scandal and Society, a podcast by History Hit. This podcast includes music by Epidemic Sounds. A quick voice note to edit that episode. Very early on, I'm talking about the actor Emma Darcy, and I didn't know that they are non-binary. And I incorrectly used the pronoun she and referred to them as an actress which I shouldn't have done, but I didn't know. I was thinking very quickly and I was just remembering a TikTok that I'd seen them in, but it's still good to call these things out, point them out and correct them whenever you can.
0: upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com dot com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just one pound a month when you use the code betwixt at checkout.